0: Welcome to Ms. Interpreted, her
1: podcast of public relations and strategic communications, demystified by Kelly Fletcher and Fletcher Marketing PR. This is a first-of-its-kind study, period. No one has done this kind of analysis on a global scale, at this depth, commissioning a third-party organization of the level of expertise of an Institute of Business Ethics in London. No one. and. So far, and and we're we're still very much in the initial process of getting this information out. So I I hope to be pleasantly surprised a little bit later on with some of them picking it up. But I think the most surprising thing to me is just how much I think a lot of people don't want this covered.
0: And they don't want to talk about it. Yeah,
1: just like everything else. They don't want to talk about it because to talk about it means we need to change. And change is difficult. And change is inconvenient and change indicates we're either doing something wrong or we could seriously be doing something better and no one likes to talk about those things.
0: Welcome listeners to the Misinterpreted Podcast. I'm Kelly Fletcher, CEO of Fletcher Marketing PR, and back with us today is Fletcher Senior Strategist Mary Beth West. She's taken a bit of a hiatus for a few months from the podcast, and I'm glad you're back back podcasting with yeah, me again. Me too.
1: Thanks, hi Kelly. It's wonderful to be back in studio with you, particularly for this topic that we're tackling today during PR Ethics Month, which is September of every year.
0: Yes, 2023, I can't believe it's about to be Q4 already. It's been a good year, but it's also been challenging in a lot of ways. Two of our past guests on the podcast, who we were very good friends with, very good friends of the business, passed away earlier this year. Joy Bishop in February and then Francis Ingham in March. Joy was a community leader and a, a veteran, a force to be reckoned with in the community, and Francis C. Ingham was the head of PRCA, the Public Relations Communications Association, based in London, and so um, it's been sad in that way, losing those two yeah. huge figures, and how are you doing?
1: Well, I appreciate your asking. It's It's been quite a year, for sure, but I'm doing okay on some days. <laughs> On some days, just okay. It's been a tough year, but also one that I think that the best way to describe it is just calling it a journey. Everything's a journey. I did post on my new website a blog post not too long ago about... You know some of the losses of personal friends and Joy Bishop was on our podcast with Sharon Hannum in, and she passed away in February of this year and uh, and and we'll talk about her legacy I think at a, at, at a later date along with Francis's and another friend of mine Dave Bakovsky both of whom uh, Francis and Dave passed away in March, but I included a blog post on my new website about just the impact that they had on my life and on. The various communities that they were part of, Joy, more so in our regional community in leadership and as a woman in business and, and such an impactful figure. And then both Francis and Dave in the public relations industry, they just had a just a wonderful role to play in how the public relations world should try to conduct itself and try to do business in ways that are really honorable and with good intent. So I am encouraged about having another conversation here about some research that we conducted about a year ago and that has just been released, and it has to do with public relations ethics codes in the industry. So I'd really love to delve into that. Okay, sure. So, Mary Beth,
0: you have conducted this research and white paper about public relations ethics code, and in that, you looked at 24 different PR associations from around the world. How did this project first come about, And. Can you touch on why these published codes are even important in the first place? Do people even pay attention to
1: them? Yeah, and, and I think they do. And kind of going back a bit, when I was on the PRCA Global Ethics Council, and this was something that Francis had set up back in 2020, part of the remit of that council was to raise industry standards worldwide. And of course, PRCA is based in... London in the UK, but it had developed very much a global footprint of membership and of people who were engaged in that. And part of the vision of the Ethics Council was to try to engage everyone in more of a global conversation around ethics. One of the things that we contend with on a worldwide basis is that we have a lot of different cultures out there, a lot of different countries, a lot of different standards of what is normal, of what constitutes normal practice for example in some countries you may have have it be common practice for giving or receiving of gifts as mm-hmm. part of the exchange in for a, a media outlet to cover a client. And that's just one example. There are many different examples. And so ethics codes can really vary from place to place. So the reason that we wanted to conduct this research was to get a baseline of what are the ethics codes in all of these different countries that represent so many different cultures and so many different communities of practitioners and identify what are the points of commonality, you know, among all of those codes? And where do we differ? And then, like, why do we differ? Why would why would one set of ethics codes include provisions about things that we all would think would be important, but other countries may have ethics codes that completely do not touch on those subjects? So, this was just a real analysis, the first of its kind, quite frankly, I've never seen any other analysis even approaching what we did. We did commission through a grant that I provided, the Institute of Business Ethics in London, to do this work. We really wanted a third-party, fully independent, third-party organization to conduct this research so that there would not be a bias in mm-hmm. there in any way. It was really important to us to have not only an organization that would be objective, but also was a subject matter expert on the subject of ethics in general. Right. And of course, they are an industry leading organization in the ethics and compliance sector in terms of setting what is the best practice across a whole host of different practice areas for organizations that really want to embrace an, an ethical mandate for their members, or it could be for, say, a private organization for their own employees. So that's how all of this came about. And you know, one of the things in my own career that I've noticed is that the public relations industry is a largely unregulated industry. And, and you and I have talked about this yes. on many occasions, that there really are very few meaningful guardrails out there for People who are, you know, they say that they're PR practitioners and they sort of, in my white paper, I called it the participation trophy. Like they'll align with an organization that says it has an ethics code and they will say, well, you know, I'm I'm a member of XYZ organization, so I'm, I'm an ethical practitioner. But when it comes right down to how they practice in the business for real, they may do all kinds of things that are in no way compliant with what that code is, and they don't really have any intention of it being. Now, I think that's more the exception than the rule. I think most people who affiliate with these organizations very much want to do the right thing and anyone can make a mistake for sure. I mean, none of us is perfect, but anyway, it's just, this analysis has enabled us to get our arms around what is the state of industry ethics codes and do they need to be improved in a number of ways in order to deal with the types of issues today that communicators are having to deal with?
0: Well, I mean, uh you know, I've read this 40 page white paper, it's very in depth. And not only do the codes need to be improved, but in my mind, in my estimation, what needs to be actually instated is some sort of accountability measure. Mm-hmm. because And maybe that's, why we need some sort of regulation and a professional accreditation. We've talked a lot about that in our industry. Like, we don't have to pass the bar, we're, you, we don't get a CPA. Right. I, there's APR, but that's not even really, that is not, you're not held to an APR standard for your entire business or your entire organization just because you have that credential. So, we have these codes of ethics, but are they? I'm curious to see if you think they're all lip service, because a couple of things that I noticed in these provisions across codes is some of the biggest issues right now going on, the most controversial, the ones that leave the, the most, the biggest door opening right. for ethics violations right now are things like A.I., Correct information, not verifying and not spreading uh, misinformation, the integrity of the data. I just sent you an email this morning about I heard a podcast on NPR about the nudge theory being discredited because the behavioral scientists manipulated the data. So, you know, who's looking at (laughs) the integrity of the data? That's another big thing. Paid media, disclosing paid media. Chris Hill, our podcast producer, was asking me about all these ads he's seeing on social media guaranteeing media coverage when these, you know, these PR publicist folks that are hanging their hat out, first of all, we don't even know if they really are. It could be some sort of AI program, who knows, are guaranteeing placements. And like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, without even knowing what the business is to to know how publicity worthy it is. Why were those at the bottom of the list? Literally, those are at the bottom of the list of the provisions across code. The bottom five are data integrity, correct information, AI, timeliness. I don't really know what timeliness means.
1: Yeah, the timeliness piece has to do with correcting information that is out there that you, okay, so here's a scenario. You release information thinking it's correct, but then you find out a week later, oh, that was incorrect information. Like a retraction. Yeah. Okay. yeah. And so the level of time that it takes for you to go out and then in the same channels that you issued the incorrect information, issuing a corrective statement, that is actually called for in a, very few number of ethics codes, but it's in there in some, and it's all about yeah. To your point, keeping disinformation and mm-hmm. and uh, purposeful information mm-hmm. out there that's not correct. So yeah, all the all these areas that you're talking about were at the bottom of the list of the instances where they were showing up in ethics codes around the world. In fact, fewer than. Five times, or just around five times, right. of the twenty-four codes that were being analyzed, and you know one of the things that we found too was that the vast majority of these twenty-four codes, and um, I believe it was about twenty of them, were found to be at least somewhat not consistent with best practice. Mm-hmm. There were only four of the codes of the twenty-four that the IBE, the Institute of Business Ethics in London that conducted the analysis, they found that those demonstrated some, you know, the most adherence to good practice. The rest of them have either some room for improvement that's fairly significant, and some of them were egregiously mm-hmm. bad. So in essence, you have a lot of situations where a PR association's ethics code may have been written 20, 30 years ago. I was going to ask about that. Yeah, that's the problem. It's yeah. like,
0: you know, when you, if you do a strategic plan and you put it in the notebook and you put it up on the shelf and you never do anything with it, is it a box that gets checked by these organizations yeah. to say, yes, we have a code of ethics. Nobody gives a crap
1: because nobody's going to enforce it anyway. Right, right. It's And that's one of the issues that I delve into in the white paper, this issue of, can you even call a code a code? If, in fact, it's really just a list of nice things to do. (laughs) I mean, really, because... A um, list of suggestions. Yeah, because, I mean, Merriam-Webster, when you look up the word code in the dictionary, you see words like law, you know, enforcement, you know, nothing subjective at all about a presumed enforcement or compliance mechanism when you hear the word code. Like if it's a code of conduct or a code of ethics, it's something that is implied that's a non-negotiable thing. And some organizations have treated it historically as a non-negotiable for membership. But then you have other organizations, um, and I will bring up PRSA as one of those, that they're... Code is what they call aspirational, meaning we want everybody to feel good about doing the right thing. And in fact, actually, PRSA's code, as they published, scored well, they scored well in terms of the number of provisions that they have compared to other organizations that are missing some provisions. So mm-hmm. they, I have always thought PRSA had a terrific published code. Unfortunately, you have situations where even the organization can't find its way to actually comply with the code, which creates a situation of serious credibility problem, not only for the organization, but for the industry when that mm-hmm. happens. And and that's been one of the biggest things I've tried to fight against and to advocate that that as an industry, we do better.
0: Well, another, I guess, red flag that I saw when I was looking through all this, is that very few of these codes have any kind of anti-retaliation. Actually, zero codes have any sort of anti-retaliation, and only two have whistleblower protection. Only four have easy-to-locate decisions.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that a lot of the PR associations out there, the issue of whistleblower protection and measures for anti-retaliation toward people who report misconduct issues. And of course, this is my life story over the past, what, six, seven years now. This is the exact thing that I encountered in spades in PRSA. The more I reported observed misconduct that was documented the more retaliation that I face right. um, from the organization. And they have no provision in their code of ethics in any way, shape, or form dealing with not negatively retaliating against people who, in good faith, report issues that they see happening within the leadership structure. And whether it's in PRSA or whether it's a member of PRSA within other organizations or their employer or agency that where they work— and for that reason, people think it's okay to retaliate. I mean, truthfully, I, I think they think that they are entitled if it means, oh, well, I'm going to safeguard the reputation of PRSA by retaliating against this troublemaker who <laughs> keeps reporting that we're doing something wrong. They think they're, I guess, in somewhere in their brain, they think they're doing a good thing, but it's actually harming the integrity of the organization because bad behavior is enabled. And it persists, and it well, only gets worse over is time. Is there
0: anything in these codes that says that violations of the code will be investigated in a timely manner if you go through a certain reporting yes. mechanism? Yes, so some
1: associations have that, and that's documented in the research report that the IBE came back with. They gave us fairly granular data about which organizations have an enforcement mechanism and have one that's fairly easy to engage for members. Now, the flip side is that there are other PR associations out there that say that they have a compliance function, but when you try to actually file a complaint or try to take action against someone who's out there, you know, Willfully engaging in disinformation and doing other things either on behalf of their client or employer, whatever the case is, you can't even find online where you go to register the complaint. The process is made almost purposefully difficult. To, it's like, to, like Facebook's privacy policy. It, it, well, exactly. There you go. That's a very good example of where, you know, so, so on, the, on the front end, they're giving this impression that, oh, we have a compliance mechanism and aren't we great because we put our money where our mouth is. But in practice there are way too many situations where PR associations are not following through with making it user friendly for the person who's trying to engage that process. Mm -hmm. And that's just, that's just dirty pool. I mean, especially when an organization knows that it has issues internally um, or issues even within its own ranks to do that. So that's another one of those major compliance fails, I would call, that I think that we have to call out as an industry and really call upon all of the association community worldwide to do better, to really take a look at what they are putting forward and doing a bit of an audit of it. Mm-hmm. You know, do we have a have credibility behind what we're out there offering?
0: Well, it seems to me like ethics codes should be revisited every year. I mean, we just were talking about we need to have an AI policy. You know, we have a plagiarism policy, we have a social media policy, we have a lot of different policies in place to protect not only our clients but our employees too in some situations. Sure. Yeah. And so If our industry is not looking at these things on a regular basis, that's not a very good example to set for your membership as far as how you view your internal codes of conduct and your internal policies that you continually have to update if you want to stay relevant to the times.
1: I completely agree with that, and the best practice standard that the Institute of Business Ethics advocates is every three years. You uh-huh. need to do some I would type, say even more often than that. Well, the, the industry that we are in now is so fluid in terms of technology. I mean, you r- raised those issues just yeah. a few minutes ago. You know, you've got AI, you've got how data is handled, you've got just the changing landscape of digital and social media and all of these implications that PR practitioners never had to give a second thought to, you know, maybe 25, 30 years ago, when a lot of these codes were maybe published or republished, uh, PRSA completely reconfigured its code into this aspirational model that they espoused back in around two thousand. Mm-hmm. Was when the, because before that, they had a compliance driven code. I mean, you could get kicked out for violating the code. And the code was structured differently. It had very different content. But in 2000, that was one of the changes they made was this aspirational code. On paper, as I said, the code provisions themselves are fine, but none of them deal with some of these topics that are modern day contemporary Mm -hmm.
0: topics Mm -hmm. like
1: like ESG is another one. I mean, ESG is one of the biggest movements in business right now around environment, social, and governance. I've written some blog posts on my side about a lot of these governance issues that have now come up, even in our own industry. And behind almost every PR ethics fail is some type of governance problem mm-hmm. going on <laughs> someone doesn't know how to follow the rule book someone or there an adequate rule book doesn't even exist and so these are the kinds of issues that PR needs to be leading from the front not just in this constant reactive posture all the time mm-hmm. and we're never going to advance as an industry unless we show leadership and demonstrate that leadership yeah. and it really the, the ethics codes are a great place to start that leadership. A lot of people, you you asked earlier too, like what is the importance of even having ethics codes or things that are on paper? It can serve as an excellent reference and backup for our industry practitioners. If they, for example, are asked by their CEO to report in a news release something that the PR practitioner knows is not correct or is false or just not on the up and up. If a, that practitioner can pull out an ethics code and say, "What you are asking me to do is, is unethical." My code of ethics. Yes, it's written here. That will get, I think, a CEO's attention far more than if that practitioner just says, mm, "I don't feel good about this." You know, sort of that more right, wishy washy fact behind it. Exactly. And some, yeah. Yeah. And and I do think that. For CEOs and C suite executives who actually like compliance is part of the world they come from. Like, if they come from a finance background or a legal background or a regulated professional background, they will appreciate seeing something on paper that says, Oh, I can't do that. (laughs) I can't release that message that.
0: It's, is it surprising yeah. sometimes what they think they can
1: say and do? It is shocking. And you have to tell them. It can them, be shocking.
0: Don't do that. You
1: can't. Right, right. And so that's where the ethics codes, I think, give practitioners the backbone they need to stand up to C-suite executives who are telling them to do things they know or not. Right. From either a communication standpoint or a trust and relationship building standpoint with stakeholders. Right.
0: Well, I think we're getting ready to go into an unprecedented time of misinformation driven by AI, mm-hmm. and that it's going to impact every level of communication from product information to politics, to healthcare information, to education information. And so as communicators, we really do need to be focused on how we combat that and what our codes say to enforce
1: what we're supposed to be doing. I agree with that. And almost two years ago, the PRCA Global Ethics Council released one of its perennial white papers that we were releasing during that timeframe about AI specifically. So this would have been in about January or February of 2022. And it was a compilation of essays from leaders in the industry about how this changing world in digital communications technology is going to impact PR practitioners. And one of the things that I said in the intro to that report was that PR needs to have a seat at that table, just as we need a seat at the C-suite table, just as we need seats, plural, in the boardroom Mm -hmm. (laughs) to drive decision making that is at its core, not unethical and not undermining of stakeholder and public trust. And until we have that place of being able to guide good decision making and preventing these lapses in judgment before they even happen, we are just going to continually be placed in this janitorial service kind of role of fixing these messes that the digital comms people create. Or not digital comms, but really more the programming and the coding Mm -hmm. people under direction of a senior management that is really just looking for a profit motive, perhaps, and not thinking about, are we upholding a public good here? (laughs) at all? Are we balancing the public good with this product that we're creating? That's maybe going to make us a lot of money, but is it deceiving people in some way? Or is it doing something that would really undermine our brand if people knew what we have built into this code to extract information that maybe we're not, not supposed to have, or we've not put forward that we're taking? Yeah. So there are all these issues and it's incredibly complex. And until our industry demonstrates the leadership and the knowledge and really the technical know-how, meaning that we have to really get educated on the technical aspects of these tools and a lot of their strategic implications, we're always going to be behind the eight ball.
0: Yeah, it's a really interesting time that we're in. I'm just curious, getting back to the ethics code study, what was the single most surprising thing that you weren't expecting to come from the research?
1: So that's a great question. I I found so many different newsworthy angles out of this report. I think one of the most surprising things I've discovered at this point is how little the PR industry media have picked it up. And I'm saying that sort of with a wry smile on my face because And I hate to have to say it. I think a lot of the PR industry, trade media don't want to talk about these issues. Yeah, because we have pitched it out. They have no motivation to cover this stuff because it calls into question a lot of their advertisers or a lot of the people who are signing a lot of checks. I mean, there is a economic exchange here. And a lot of different issues that are inherent to that, that I think there is a wholesale effort not to talk about these elephants in the room. And this is just one of them. So I would say that one of the most surprising things, this is a first of its kind study, period. No one has done this kind of analysis on a global scale at this depth, commissioning a third party organization of the level of expertise of an institute of business ethics in London no one and so far and and we're we're still very much in the initial process of getting this information out so I, I hope to be pleasantly surprised a little bit later on with some of them picking it up but I think the most surprising thing to me is just how much I think a lot of people don't want this covered And they don't want to talk about, yeah, just like everything else. They don't want to talk about it because to talk about it means we need to change. And change is difficult. And change is inconvenient. And change indicates we're either doing something wrong or we could seriously be doing something better. And no one likes to talk about those things. And it's just, it's like we're on this merry-go-round in our industry. It's like nothing can change because nobody wants to acknowledge what needs to be changed. And so nothing changes. And so we just keep having the same dialogues year after year and decade after decade about the same stupid problems. Well, I really think
0: that people are busy and to take on some of these big currents of change, you've got to put a big time commitment behind it and, a, and it's something that you've done but i don't think there are a lot of people that want just don't want to take take on the amount of sheer work that it would be to make some of these changes so instead they just keep moving on with their well, yeah, daily yeah I, mean,
1: I, I think that their jobs is a laziness factor but i also think there is a lack of systemic thinking behind it too This idea of if we just don't acknowledge the problem, it will somehow go away. Because at its core, these issues that we're talking about very much influence how much people in general out there who are in the market for public relations services or would be, how much they respect what we do, how much they value what we do, how much they understand the sheer scope of what public relations offers as a strategic function, we're talking about the economic viability of public relations as a field of practice that people want to hire both in-house to their companies or an, or agencies like ours right. for this. And it's just a shame to me that if, if this kind of mindset persists, we're just shooting ourselves in the foot by not addressing it. <laughs> So it's it's a real quandary but it it's something that I'm doing all I can within my very modest means to try to change a status quo that I am in no way all right with and I hope that others will get they don't have to get behind me but if they will at least get behind the data and say hey Some things here need to change and let's try to work for the good of the industry. That's really all I ask.
0: Well, you know, it may never be acknowledged, but I can't imagine that when organizations read this report and see where they ranked and how many provisions they have and how outdated they are, that they won't take a look at the codes. I mean, you may not know about all of them because lots of organizations don't like to admit when they've fallen short in an area, but I think it is going to impact change because you would just have to be completely oblivious to not read this and recognize your organization's code of ethics needs some work. And there wasn't a perfect one out there.
1: I mean no, they could no, all they could
0: all benefit from of review course. and updating. And,
1: and we were very careful. And when I say we, I mean I and, you know, some others who had been involved in the study earlier, but who decided they were, you know, concerned about you know, maybe having a certain organizational name affixed to it, I will say that great pains were taken not to get into a finger-pointing exercise. That is not what this white paper is. It does not say, oh, these associations are bad because they've... I mean, it doesn't get into that naming and shaming exercise at all. It just presents the data. That's all it is. So it's not something that I think association leadership teams should view through a lens of feeling threatened or... All of those just knee-jerk reactions, which are completely unnecessary. And I'd love to turn the question back to you, Kelly, about, I mean, you're an agency founder, leader, CEO. How do you think that PR associations could be a better resource to you as a leader and as someone who's trying to lead a company of practitioners, compete in the marketplace in an ethical way, against some players out there who are not ethical? I mean, what could associations be doing to help you in that regard, given how I know you try to do business?
0: Yeah, I have to say I'm not so much worried about what everybody else is doing from on the competitive landscape, but where I think that we could be better served by our industry organizations, whether it be PRSA, PRCA, American Marketing Association, you know, all of them, is to have some sort of training in implementation process for when you're starting an agency how to build your own relevant code of conduct we don't have one we have core values right and so if you follow our five core values and the the measuring stick there is what does it take to get fired around here Mm -hmm. if you follow those five core values inherently we wouldn't need a plagiarism policy we wouldn't need a social media policy, but common sense is not so common. <laughs> so I think that I'd like to work on the code of ethics for our agency that lays out all of these policies in one code that's easy to pull out and refer to. You know, what am I allowed to do in this company as far as using AI to help me with my work? You know, what where's the line? Can I use it to write a blog post? For me, the answer is no. Right. And how can these trade organizations help us to better adhere to ethics in our organizations when they're not even paying attention to their own codes of ethics, right. much less training membership how to do the same. And then I think that another way that the global PR industry and the or our trade organizations could service better is to have some sort of measuring stick for if your agency gets caught putting out disinformation or if your agency gets called out for working with an influencer and not disclosing that it's paid placement or you're putting out paid placement content and representing it as earned media, all those things should be in some sort of code and should be passed down to us to be thinking about on a regular basis and making sure that we're paying attention to it and little things aren't starting to seep
1: in that aren't, that aren't ethical. I think that those are excellent ideas and and should be points as food for thought for the industry to be thinking about what are some training modules that could be developed and kind of live in a real time basis for agency leaders for practitioners because i mean the concerns of the agency ceo or founder is maybe going to be a bit different than the entry-level practitioner um, from a strategic to a tactical standpoint. But if more training could be offered that was standard and that met a lot of these best practice criteria that the IBE clearly has put forward, I think it would go a tremendously long way. In fact, the IBE has many training offerings that they offer either for free or at a very low cost that speak toward business ethics in any kind of organizational setting, for-profit, not-for-profit, governmental, whatever it is. And we should be taking advantage of that. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. This doesn't have to be that difficult to draw upon resources that already exist out there.
0: Yeah, and there's, I think, one area that where ethics comes into play in our business more than ever, is on our reporting out to clients, how we report in the language that we use. For example, we know earned media value ERV is out. Nobody uses that anymore, although you still see it pop up from time to time. But this paid media piece that's in here, that's in the the bottom one, two, three, the bottom six in the provisions codes, less than, looks like about seven or eight out of the 24 had some sort of something about paid media and their code of ethics. Well, that's a huge one yeah, in our business it is. right now. It it's is, a universal it's, issue. It's huge. And so even to say, to represent wire distribution as earned media, it's not earned media if a media outlet doesn't take it and do something with it. If they just run it verbatim, if it's just a straight pickup, duplicate content, we don't count that as earned media. That's a form of paid and so, and I, but I guarantee you that most agencies count it as earned and they put a release on the wire and we say, they say we got you 327 placements or whatever. No, you didn't. Mm-hmm. You know, it took you 30 minutes to get that uploaded and approved and out there, pushed out. But if the media doesn't pick it up and do a story with it or, you know, write a brief from it, then that's paid media. So nobody is telling us. To your point of being largely unregulated, even what terminology is acceptable to be putting forth to clients and then the public for how we define
1: our deliverables? We have a major nomenclature issue in our industry. We always have. I mean, the words and the terms that we assign, we can't even agree amongst ourselves (laughs) about these things. So that being the case, it makes it really difficult for us to educate clients in a consistent way. And yeah, also, I've always said we also have a bad Ronnie Dangerfield complex, the I get no respect. Well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> if we can't justify and quantify what we're doing, that's why, you know, we're members of AMEC is to really try to put more knowledge and more forethought into how are we measuring what we do and making sure all of that is happening in an ethical way too. So yeah, it, it takes some real thought and some real purpose behind wanting to do things the right way, particularly nowadays that things have become so complicated.
0: So this is really good work, Mary Beth. I really have I appreciate the time and energy that you've put into this project and you know your personal funding of the research to get this out there into the world. And I really do hope that all of the trade organizations will just take a minute. It's You know, it's not an affront on anybody. It's just saying, hey, we can all do better. We can all improve. I can in my business. Most every business has room for improvement in lots of different areas. I'm going to take this as a push to get a code of ethics together for our internal agency and to talk to our team about it and get their input on what they think should be on there. Because I think it's important to have core values, but I think we need to take some of these policies and put them into a code.
1: So, I think it's a terrific outcome. I think it would be a terrific outcome for any agency, particularly some of those that are of the size of having scores of employees or hundreds of employees. I mean, you're getting into so many people and personalities that having some uniformity around the do's and don'ts of the business can be very powerful and very helpful.
0: Well, it's just straight up risk management right. at the end of the day. So, I mean, most businesses have some processes and procedures to ensure risk management is taking place. So, why wouldn't we? Right. I'm really excited and proud as we wrap up this episode to tell our listeners about your going to the ICCO Global Summit in Warsaw, Poland in October, and you are going to serve on a panel there on the topic of how to embrace AI and PR ethically. I can't wait to listen to that panel because I would really like to hear what everybody has to say about
1: that. I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to do that, and a couple of my colleagues came up with that idea. It's going to be a terrific speaking engagement. Uh, Christina Forsgard from Finland. She's led um, Eco's ethics campaign for several years. And Maxim Behar, whom we met in London, one, you know, not too long ago, Kelly, for dinner yeah, with he and so, his wife. He's so fun, and he's a great fun person. He is, and he's a wonderful leader. He's a past chair of ECO, very illustrious figure in advocating for PR worldwide, but I'm going to be able to work with both of those colleagues on that session. So yeah, stay tuned for that. I'm, I'm looking forward. That's great, Mary Beth. And I hope that you'll come away with some some takeaway
0: on how these organizations, maybe ECO drives it, can pass down guidance for us, formal guidance. On how we should be thinking about and handling AI in our daily business, and it needs—we need constant updates because it's constantly changing. Um, I hope that something will come out of that conference that you can bring back and teach me about that. Anyway, thank you for being joining us today, Mary Beth, and thank you to our listeners for listening. And I appreciate you just continuing to drive this conversation around PR ethics. You can follow us on Twitter at FletcherPR, and you can also follow me on Twitter at Katie Fletcher, and you can follow Mary Beth at Mary Beth West. We'll respond to your questions and comments, so please post them using the hashtag MsInterpreted, and that's hashtag Interpreted. And for visibility's sake, don't forget to capitalize the PR. And whether it's Ethics Month in September or the whole year through, please keep the conversation about ethics alive and well. Use the hashtag PREthics. Thanks everyone for joining us until next time. Thanks for joining us on Misinterpreted Public Relations Demystified. You can keep up with the latest on the podcast at FletcherMarketingPR.com and on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.